Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. talk, but a learning. So I hope you will engage, you'll ask questions, you'll challenge, you'll share your view, you will, um, um, you know, uh, uh, put out there whatever you, you want to put out there. We have a, a lot to cover, um, but my hope is that, uh, I also want to just acknowledge that um, folks are here for very different reasons. Some may be here for intellectual curiosity, others may be struggling. Uh, I mean, everyone's struggling in different ways. Um, and so uh, to understand the sensitivity of the material and also to understand that something that may seem offensive or absurd to you may be meaningful to someone else. Suffering is a complicated, a complicated matter. And one of the reasons I wanted to tackle this is partially because to understand suffering is to understand happiness. That presumably all of us, maybe it might, it might be in our top three or it might be in our top ten life goals might be to achieve some sense of peace and happiness, and uh, certainly a part of that would be to understanding what's blocking that. Uh, A second level is not just about the self, but about the other. Um, How do we cultivate empathy for another? Um, This is, of course, not just um, about understanding another's suffering, which might be very different than ours, but it also could be life or death of preventing uh, a suicide or preventing uh, the end of a relationship, um, which has has, uh, has had a lot of suffering involved. So, um, um, uh, so I think that um, we're going to leave with more questions than answers, of course, but we're going to gain a lot of perspectives on how people have grappled with this throughout. Our, what we did two weeks ago, looking at the book of Jonah, was totally different. It was a very focused, like, one book, one topic. This is a little bit all over the place because it's the rabbinic tradition, which is uh, more uh, argumentative than it is uh, monolithic. And so we will see that. And so there's no attempt for consistency here. That, you know, when people say, what is the Jewish view? Well, there's no Jewish view. There's actually a thousand Jewish views. Um, So, uh, okay, so we'll go around for our reading. If you don't want to read, you can just say pass. Um, But just to bring some more voices in here. So, Ed, why don't you kick us off here? Anyone not have a packet? Okay, great. Uh, So we're at the first source here, the benefit to sickness. Until the time of Jacob, nobody became sick before they died. People died suddenly without warning. Then Jacob prayed that a person should become sick before they died so that they could convey their last wishes to their children. And sickness came into being. For it says, Joseph was told that his father, Jacob, was sick. Mm-hmm. Which means, yeah, that means Genesis. Mm-hmm. Until the time of Elisha, no sick person ever recovered. But Elisha prayed and recovered. 
Okay, so we, we, gave, we gave the rabbinic answer, or a rabbinic answer, before we asked the question even, but why should there be sickness in the world? Right, why should there be sickness? And one of the ways they grapple with that is that sickness is a transition between life and death. I mean, hopefully it's not always dead, right? Um, uh, but on, on the, in the most serious cases, um, there's something, we tend to think a sudden death, unless it's uh, when one has passed well into their dotage, that a sudden death is something tragic. Right? Whereas someone who uh, is on the older side who has suffered for a long time, it's almost like if someone has suffered for their whole 70s and dies at 80, um, that feels very different than someone who randomly dies at 80. Right? There's no chance to say goodbye. There's no chance for a lot of things, and, and all the more so if they're younger. And so the first uh, question is, what, what is this whole thing of sickness? Um, and what's that about? And is there any benefit to that? Okay, on the other hand, we're going to see now a rabbinic view that actually pain, we're not talking about suffering yet, we'll, we'll, we'll distinguish soon, pain um, is worse than death. So Josh? Yeah, so this is from one of the tractates of the Talmud called Ketubah, which is about the Ketubah, the wedding document. Uh, but of course, the, Tal the Talmud it goes in lots of tangents, so they'll talk about other things as well. Is it Rebbe? Re Rebbe, yeah, Rebbe. Rebbe's maid went on the roof and prayed, the angels desire Rebbe. And the mortals desire Rebbe. May it be the will of God that the mortals overpower the angels. It's, it's like a cool image, right? They're like fighting. We want them on earth. We want them in the heavens. They're fighting over who gets Rebbe. When she saw how many times Rebbe had to go to the toilet and suffer taking off the tefillin and putting them on again, she prayed, May it be the will of God that the angels overpower the mortals. Since the sages prayed continuously, preventing Rebbe from dying, she threw a jar from the roof to the ground, momentarily distracting the sages from their prayers. At that moment, Rebbe's soul departed. Okay. So um, what do you make of that passage there? His caretaker... The prayer is sustaining her. Yeah, and, and, and how is her view different from all these other sages at the time? Yeah, right. They sort of feel they need him, and she cares more about him, it seems. So, um, by the way, in end-of-life uh, Jewish legal discussions, this is a, a critical text. It's a critical text um, because there's a whole conversation about direct intervention, but then there's also a conversation about indirect intervention. Um, like, pulling a tube is very different than not giving treatments, right? And so this, um, she is used as an example of how, for compassion for, uh, for one who is ill, one might do something, like throw a jar, um, so to speak, uh, to, uh, to help someone to transition from this world. So it's actually interesting, and I think there'd be an interesting empirical study around, um, around gendered approaches to suffering as well. And this is only one text on that. But I did some re research on asceticism. If I asked you, is Judaism primarily ascetic? What would you say to that? You'd say no. Okay, why? Um, we seem to be more concerned with living in, in the world, not going outside okay, great. ourselves to ponder things. Great, okay. So there are ideas of hedonism in the world where people think eat, drink, and be merry. The most important thing in life is pleasure. And there are, of course, traditions and ideologies which are all about the denial of pleasure. And undeniably, Judaism is in the middle there, right? Somewhere in the middle around um, enjoy the life, enjoy wor the world, that's good. But there should be some restrictions on these things, right? 
some of our wealth should go charitably, right? We shouldn't um, be engaged in sexual activity all the time or be gluttons or be dr you know, drink all the time, you know, and so, so it goes on. But we should enjoy these things. And so, but I think in general, the, 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 the heavy thrust of Jewish uh, texts and ideas throughout history would move more towards an anti-ascetic approach. I think that's right. However, I researched a little bit to look at some of the best examples of ascetic approaches in Jewish history, which um, um, did not make it into mainstream practice. Right? You might say, oh, well, fasting is still here, right? That, 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 which is clearly an ascetic practice that every spiritual tradition has. Um, but, um, um, but that's sort of mainstream. Uh, if you look at things that didn't make it, I'll give you a few examples. Some might make you chuckle. The Hasidic Ashkenaz, a group that you don't hear much about, nothing like the, the, the Hasidim today, well before, um, you know, Germany you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, they would roll naked in the snow in the winter um, to freeze their bodies, and they would smear honey on their bodies to get stung by bees in the summer. Um, the, in the Musser camp of Navardic, very different than Slobodka. Slobodka was all about the greatness of the human being and emphasizing the greatness of the self. Navardic was all about breaking down the individual to see their lowliness. They hung a fish in their Beit Midrash, a dead fish. So you could always remember, you're gonna be like that dead fish soon, right? It was like about the lowliness of the human experience. So they would um, publicly shame their students and they would inappropriately dress them and put them on a train and send them hundreds of miles away with no money um, to the middle of nowhere. Um, then a guy named Rav Arla Roth would wear sackcloth under his shirt and he would whip himself regularly. Um, presently, there are Hasidic groups that in the name of Kedusha, in the name of holiness, they, um, they only have, um, uh, they, well, they, they, they only have marital relations, any sexual activity with their wives once a month. Uh, that's like their rule. Um, once a month, the night of, uh, night of mikvah. Also, there was a, the, in, the, in the period of Lurianic Sfat, um, for the Lurianic Kabbalah, um, um, they would um, fast extensively, sometimes for hundreds, or in some cases even thousands of days in a row. Meaning they would, you know, like a daytime fast. Um, and um, it, it gets more, a little bit more extreme too. Um, they would put their, there was a camp that would put their bodies symbolically through four different mitot beitin. So what do I mean by mitot beitin? Uh, there's four ways to be put to death by Jewish law. We have no historical evidence that the death penalty was ever used, but um, there were four methods produced. Actually, it's interesting, uh, and it's important to know, that um, crucifixion was not one of the four. Um, that wouldn't be the way a Jew would ever put someone to death with crucifixion. There's four ways to do it, and that wouldn't be one. Um, so, um, so, th so they would, after they would die, have them put their body through those four different approaches. Um, strangulation and uh, stoning and these types of things. Um, then there was a practice of giving lashes right before Yom Kippur. The, they'd go to the Rebbe and the rabbi would lash them. Um, Are they getting any biblical context? Like, like where they come up with... Where they come up with these? Yeah, so like the four uh, uh, you know, forms of death penalty, they're, they're deriving from a biblical source. The fasting, they're deriving from a biblical source. Then there's another where they put, they put themselves into gullus, into, gullus, into the self-imposed exile um, for atonement. Um, in fact, there's even a suggestion that they renewed smicha, they renewed the rabbinic uh, ordination process only in order to lash, force converts um, uh, in the period of the Inquisition. So... So, but anyways, I share all that to say that all of these practices of asceticism, which are huge anomalies in our history, were men. 
they were men. Um, now, there's two possible reasons for that. One is that we have very little written tradition of anything women did, right, in Jewish, in Jewish history. Um, uh, of how they prayed, what they prayed, what their personal spiritual practices were, basically all recorded spiritual tradition in Jewish thought until modernity, and even well beyond modernity. The first reform rabbi um, ordained as a woman is only a few decades ago, let alone only a decade ago, two, a, a little over a decade ago, the first orthodox woman rabbi, right? Um, and so, um, uh, so, so one possibility is that they were doing all types of ascetic things, and we just don't know anything about it. Um, the other possibility is that men would have written about it, about what their wives or daughters were doing, but they weren't organized in community. It would have all been very private. But the other is that they have a very different approach to asceticism, right? Again, we don't know the answer to that, and that's why it'd be an interesting uh, approach. But here, all these sages are saying, keep him on earth. He's our teacher. We need him here. We don't care if he's, if he's in pain. And, and the one taking care of him, the, the one the woman of the story, of course, she's not even given a name, um, but she, um, she uh, wants him to die. She wants him to die. Yeah. What did he want? Ah, right. That's a good. That's a good question. We don't know, right? We don't know. What's that? Was he real or was he a symbol in terms of what's written here? Yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. That's also an approach. You never know with a lot of these. Or, or the the um, the, the famous. Uh, actually, this week is the yard site. Is the anniversary of the passing of the Maharam Merutenburg. Now, anyone recognize that name, Maharam Merutenburg? So actually, what's interesting, he's very relevant today when, um, when Palestinian terrorist groups um, capture an Israeli soldier. Uh, why? So in, in Germany, um, I think it was the 12th century, though, it may have been the 13th century, Maharam Merutenburg was captured by um, the German king. And they wanted X number uh, uh, of it was twenty thousand silver or whatever that whatever that currency was. I'm blanking at the moment. Um, and he instructed the, his, one of his teachers raised it. His name was the Rush, the Rush, and he raised that money. But he instructed him to not pay it, and he died there in prison eventually. And he instructed him not to pay it. Be, why do you think? Didn't want to set a precedent. Didn't want to set a precedent. They would inevitably capture more um, more rabbis. So why is that relevant to the current situation? This debate always happens. How many um, uh, alleged or convicted terrorists uh, from Hamas in Israeli prisons should be released to bring back an Israeli soldier? They actually give a ton over for a body, too. They might give 1,000 um, folks from Hamas in prisons to get a living person, but they might give 400, 500, 600 to get a body back of someone who's already dead. So, um, that, but the same, the same issue emerges of, well, what kind of precedent are we going to set? Next time they're going to want 2,000, how many are they going to capture now? So, Maharam Rutenberg, anyways, so, but Rebbe Akiva, Rebbe Akiva also, he's, he, they're burning him alive, and the students say, Rebbe, open your mouth so it can, you can die sooner, and he says, he, he's, and he, he indicates he won't, um, because he wants the fullness of the passing as he's saying Shema Yisrael. So again, what happens there? So um, this whole thing about do we want a quick death? Do we want a prolonged death? Um, who has the compassion around that? Um, this will move us into source number three. So source number three, now let's say something about pain versus suffering. How would you distinguish pain versus suffering? What's the difference between pain and suffering? Yeah. Your mindset around it. Great. So pain is the physical sensation, right? The pain is, is the physical sensation. It, um, 
And um, suffering is, to, to a large degree, our interpretation of that pain. Um, now, there of course can be psychological suffering that doesn't have physical pain involved, which is a suffering of a different nature. Um, but, um, but oftentimes it is said that um, pain is uh, in many ways not in our, our control, unless you have, uh, <laughs> don't have pain management. Um, but, suffering, uh, uh, but suffering, there is more control. Of course, we want to really qualify that because uh, you don't want to say someone is in control of their depression or in control of their trauma uh, or the like. Um, but there are different degrees of types of, uh, of suffering, parts we may have more control over and parts we have less. So what I want to look at here is a Talmudic exploration of, of defining suffering. Okay, who are we up to? David. What is the measure Okay, the word for suffering here in the Hebrew, here in the Talmud, is yisurin, if that is of any interest to you. Yisurin, it's the, it's the fourth word there on the second line. Okay, keep going. Eliezer said, if a man had a garment woven for him to wear, and it does not fit him, <laughs> Rav Zera, some say it was Rav Samuel ben Nachmani demurred to this. More than this has been said. Even if he was to be served hot and it was served cold, or cold and it was served hot, and you require so much, Mar the son of Rabina said, even if his shirt got turned inside out, Rava, some say Rav Kista, some say Rav Isaac, or as was taught at a Bereta, even if he put the hand into his pocket to take out three coins and he said something. <laughs> okay, so what do you make of that? This is about that. Uh, Reality being different than expectation. Oh, interesting. Okay, right. Which is most certainly um, a cause of so much suffering. Um, how many people expected um, their marriage to look different than it did? Or how many people expected their 60s to look different than it was? Or expected to retire at this age and couldn't? Or uh, failed expectations. Um, yeah, it, it, that's very interesting. Anyone else? What's happening here? Yeah. It's a what? Oh, good, good. Expect three coins, I only find two. Okay. If I put on right. a pair of pants, don't expect anything, put my hand in, wow, I found three coins I thought I had lost. It's all relative. Okay, great. So, right, there's a relativity, there's the subjectivity to how people experience this stuff, to be sensitive to. Yeah. Suffering, to me, may not be right. suffering. To right, right, yeah, good, yeah. Quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I, as a physician, I see that a lot as yes, well. Yes, right. And they, I see them tightly intertwined. And what some people would accept as an acceptable quality of life, acceptable level of suffering, may be totally unacceptable to somebody right. else. Right, right. And yeah. uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Yes, right. So I'm surprised nobody, uh, everybody was very charitable 
Um, nobody wanted to be critical here of, of, of these fellows. <laughs> I mean, it could be read as uh, comical. I mean, they're kind of mocking these guys, uh, which is unlikely because these are kind of big names in the tradition. But, it, but you could read this as, this is ridiculous, a little bit ridiculous. This is how you define suffering. You know, these are like elite, elite uh, must be elite fellows who are, you know, complaining that their food isn't hot enough, you know? Um, but I think the other way to look at it is that these three things are symbolic, right? The first one is about clothes, right? The suffering of the dignity of one's attire. The second one is about one's physical sustenance, the suffering that comes with, um, with food. The third is, uh, I guess, also about clothes. Um, uh, and, then, and then the fourth is financial. So, um, and then you might say there that actually little, tr little things trigger bigger things. Yes, oh, that might seem like a very simple, small, you know, petty, trivial matter, but actually it triggers something much deeper from one's past or about one's, uh, uh, for example, I, I, I never cease to be amazed at what makes someone blush, right? Uh, the things that actually can make one feel ashamed or embarrassed, um, and how unpredictable that is uh, about what gives somebody a sense of dignity. Someone was gonna say something? Yes, Steve, yeah. Uh, just in response to what you just Yeah, said, please, yeah, yeah. I, I thought of it entirely differently. Ah. When I think of somebody blushing, ah. it's when somebody says something complimentary. Oh, yes, that too, right. But anyway, yeah. uh, earlier you used the phrase loneliness of human experience which I, I, I'm not sure what that is, except in my case. Um, is that pain or suffering? Um, well, um, that's actually something we're going to come to. So let's, so let's come back to that. It's a great point. Yeah, no, I don't say that. I never say that. <laughs> Thank you. But, but, but uh, yeah, we're going to come back, back to the social experience, exactly, uh, and, and the existentialism. And so there, this can get a little bit Freudian here as well, right, that actually a lot of this is unconscious. What gets triggered for us into suffering um, are things we don't understand exactly from our youth, from our childhood. Certainly it could be genetic or intergenerational as well, intergenerational trauma, but... Um, uh, but this is like children. Children cry about this stuff. My, I mean, I, I've got little kids. My food's not hot enough. My food's too cold. There's nothing in my pocket, you know. But actually, um, as Freud suggests, we never really grow up, right? I mean, those things that um, are deep in our psyche are always kind of there. Um, and yet, how much tolerance do we have for different types of suffering? So you may recall the day, especially physicians in the room, medical providers in the room, when um, doctors solely decided how much pain patients were in. Now, you probably recognize this from today. You recognize this? <laughs> what level are you at? Are you at no pain, unimaginable, unspeakable? I feel like what my wife would say is a two. I'd be like, it's an eight, it's an eight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Give me more. I remember I had a major surgery and they wouldn't give me more. I'm like, come on. I was like fighting the whole hospital. Give me more. <laughs> Yeah. Field now acknowledge that, that pain scale you're referring yeah. to has in fact been a major contributor to the opioid crisis. Oh, very interesting. Okay, right. Um, because of an abuse of this or because of just um, uh, a, a desire for more? Yeah. Or 
above. All the above, right. So if this, if this is true for pain, that there's a more subjective way of measuring it, who should be in control of dictating the level of pain one's experiencing, is that objective or subjective? Then the rabbis here are saying the same about suffering, that um, that's relative. Actually, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, said um, that if a child is crying about a broken toy, you should view that as a parent, as an adult crying about their factory burning down. Um, that's how seriously you should take it for what it means to them on a subjective level. Now, um, uh, the, the, one, of, one of the negative sides of, uh, of, of, of learning and, and teaching Torah is that you kind of have to try to live by it. Um, and so my son had left a toy somewhere 20 miles away, and I'm driving home, and I'm like, oh, we don't need it. It's just a stupid little Batman thing. And I'm 10 miles down there. I'm like, Yisrael Salanter, Yisrael Salanter, Yisrael Salanter. And I was like, oh, I can't get it out of my head. And I drove back, and I got this toy, and, you know, he'd already forgotten about it, you know? I'm like, come on, Salanter. He forgot about the toy already, you know? You know? But, but um, very different things. Um, so, okay, so how should we um, relate to other people's suffering? We're beginning to grapple with that. Now, let's look at Bava Metzia. Rabbi Bisman, if you want to take Bava Metzia for us here. Okay, I, I think it would be great if we studied the book of Job together sometime, but it couldn't be one session, it'd have to be like three, or maybe 10. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but one of the themes of the book of, of Eov is um, um, other people mocking Job and explaining away his, uh, his suffering, telling him why he, he suffers. And I think part of what the rabbis are saying here um, well, not part of exactly what they're saying here, is that we can't make meaning of other people's suffering um, and interpret it for them um, uh, and, and speak to them the way that, uh, that they did. Rather, we should follow the teaching of Pirkei Avot 225. Don't judge another until you're in their place. Right? So, um, of course, when we get to the issue of medical providers and the issue of policy, national policy, then we'll have to create policies that are objective, right? Um, but when it comes to social relationships, we may make sense of our own suffering in one way, but that might be different of how we interpret someone else's. Okay, so that's the theme we're going to see here in Brachot 5a, source number four. Okay, Yehuda. Yes, we in Great. Okay, so this is a, a theology which you may find repulsive or attractive of Yesurin Mayahava. What does Barachot mean? Oh, sorry. Barachot means blessings and it's a tractate of the Talmud. Thanks, thanks for asking that. Um, so this theology would be called Yesurin Mayahava. I put point A up front, which means um, that God strikes us with suffering from love, right? 
Um, now, what tradition would you normally associate Sakina theology with? Christianity, right? That suffering is, um, uh, is being, like, uh, being like Jesus, right? Suffering is good. Um, so um, what do they say we should do when we experience afflictions? We should investigate our deeds, right? We are doing something that is bringing that on, um, is the idea here. And if I asked you, how many of you believe there's a God who rewards and punishes in this world? How many would raise your hand? Okay, oh, okay, at, at least two, at least maybe three, four, a few who thinks uh, there's a God who rewards people in this world and punishes in this world. Okay, now if I, uh, yes, please. Okay, 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 great. Yes, yeah, something, super, something supernatural. Now, if I ask you, how many of you believe in some kind of notion of karma? How many, raise, how many would raise your hand? Okay, a few more. Now, what if I said karma is more or less the same ideology, right? But the idea of reward and punishment from a god feels a little bit um, like, oh, that's, the, that's an old belief, a little bit offensive, whereas karma feels like, oh, that's a little bit hipper and a little more Eastern than Jewish, so that's a little more attractive, right? But now, to be sure, there are differences in the two. Um, and one might say that karma operates not on a punishment model, but on a model of bringing balance. A mixed bag is certainly possible. Um, but some notion here that actually some of our suffering is connected to our own deeds. Now, how could that be uh, misused, that idea? Like a great rabbi, well, he's great, but he's also very problematic. Um, rabbi Avadia Yosef was probably the, um, the most learned sage of the 20th century. He was a Sephardic rabbi from Egypt. Uh, there's a lot to say about him. It was very complicated. He became blind, and he had the Talmud memorized, they say. You know, but he also, when he entered the political realm, he was quite problematic. So like um, what, in, in New Orleans, what was the hurricane? Katrina? Katrina? So he said, it was because of the gays that there was a hurricane in New Orleans. You know, so you hear you know, sort of right-wing the theology folks in Judaism, Christianity, and the like, who will attribute suffering in the world to sins that they don't like. Well, like right? The Book of Judges is all about the Israelites yeah. Right. Oh, on a biblical level, that's the, that's the read of it. All the suffering. Uh, that's why, uh, thankfully, Judaism is not really a biblical tr uh, a religion. The Bible is sort of one of our books within a whole array of, of, of ideas. Um, but there's an understanding that we kind of move beyond the biblical era where it's exact. I mean, the notion of open miracles, splitting of a sea, or open punishments for Pharaoh, we just don't live in that world. Um, uh, at least we can't see it. But, but this idea of on an individual level. So some, some Jewish philosophers suggested that hashkacha, meaning divine providence, on a collective level has faded, um, but on an individual level may still be there. Okay, so, so, um, so that's one thing that's going on here. The other thing um, is the idea that those who suffer are more likely to turn towards God than those who are um, living quite comfortably. There might be those living comfortably who say a prayer of gratitude or the like, you know, but more commonly, you know, as they say, there's no atheist in a foxhole, but right? Suffer will also just as easily reject God. Okay. Uh, talk about Holocaust yes. who say, you know, right. how could it be a God if it right. to happen? Good, so, yeah. Even though at one point they may have had it. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. So interesting enough, the, interesting enough, and I've never seen a study on the exact percentages, and tell me if anyone here has, the survivors went both ways. Some of them became uber devout, 
and others left. And others left and then came back, like an Ellie Wiesel type who was challenging God to the highest extreme, take God to court, God's guilty, found guilty in court. And then also is writing Hasidic works, you know, so those who continue to struggle. So there's a notion of that, that suffering may move one away from God or it may move one closer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, yeah. there's an incredible movie, uh, if you have not seen it, uh, God on Trial. Yeah, yeah. This wow. is the Holocaust, uh, during the Holocaust, and these prisoners put God on trial for what was wow. happening to them. And to see that conversation and how it ends as they're being led off to the chambers is truly impressive. Yeah, yeah. You should, you should definitely see it. It's okay. So, so the other way to understand what's going on here is that this is not a, um, a spiritual response to suffering, but a moral response, which is to say, examine your deeds, doesn't mean figure out what you did wrong, but figure out how you can improve. Right? You never let any, any uh, bad suffering go to waste. Right? Put it to use. Put it to use to, for refinement, essentially. Um, that suffering can be a gift um, to help one to grow. It's kind of a little, a little kick. To, to, to embrace such an opportunity. Now, again, not something to advise another person in. Um, hey, this is a great opportunity for you to <laughs> become a better person, but it may be an opportunity to turn in, in for oneself. As Leonard Cohen famously said, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in, right? So it's only through those uh, cracks we have in ourselves that, that any light can actually get in there at all. Um, and then it's a cold and broken hallelujah. And so that praise comes from that cold, that cold brokenness. Um, or the Baal Shem Tov uh, uh, wrote, let me fall and let my new self catch me. Um, which is to say kind of a little bit of letting go of this old self and let me become someone new and kind of catch, uh, catch that old self there as well. Um, but this also might not be just for um, behavioral modification, but also cognitive modification. What are some beliefs or perspectives I need to change? How do I... Um, Reduce my suffering by interpreting my pain differently, right? Um, so anyways, so, so, so this is a, really a very uh, um, a, important text in the conversation uh, for those who, uh, who, who, who find that compelling. Now, it's also worth saying that um, um, there are different stages, of, of course, of grief and loss, right? The notion um, that suffering might be understood as struggling against one's current reality, as opposed to letting go of control of that struggle against the current reality, right? Um, but there's, of course, different stages of grief and loss and, and the like. And at some stages, we might not be at acceptance yet. Once we get to the point of acceptance, we can reduce some of the su- suffering of struggling against what is inevitably the reality as we know it. Um, and so, and so uh, there may be stages in our ability to do that. Okay, let's jump to Rav Cook. Um, uh, letter, C, letter C here. Okay. Understanding our pain enables a tikkun. Good. Good. My heart shall not Great is your steadfast love to me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of 
Good. Great. Thank you. So, so um, what does Rev Cook want to say here? So he's a mystic, um, and he believes in the fullness of life experience. Right? Life is not about happiness. Life is about living in fullness. And living in fullness means embracing the depths of human experience. If you have joy, be immersed in it. And if you have sorrow, be immersed in it, right? Because there is revelation that occurs within every type of human experience. Um, even, the, even the negative ones, the, the disjunctive emotions compared to the con, uh, uh, conjunctive, those that, that separate us from people instead of that bring us together. And he says, the, the revelation of the soul, now of course soul is, is a bad Jewish word, why? Because there's five levels of soul. There's no soul, there's souls. The human being has the, the nefesh, the ruach, the neshama, the chia, and the yechida. These five different souls, essentially, that operate on different spiritual levels. Each one is almost like a different eye looking on a different plane of existence. And so um, the, if, if a couple eyes are closed, nothing can be, uh, maybe even ears is actually a better, a better metaphor here. Because uh, part of it is, is revelation is seeing, and part of it is, 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 is being macabre, is accepting, is hearing and, and bringing it in. And so the heart can't retreat from this sorrow because something can be revealed in that. This is actually, if one took a spiritualist approach to end of life, as opposed to just a utilitarian approach, one might say that one should um, live as long as they could because of the fullness of life experience. Now, from the perspective of pain, that's not so advised. But from the perspective of what can be um, understood in certain um, end-of-life experiences that couldn't be understood in other, in other stages as a part of one's one time on this earth. And so um, as a mystical approach, as opposed to a moral approach or spiritualist approach, um, we see um, this idea of sorrow uh, being something that is not just constrictive, it narrows us, it could be, but actually can be expansive. It can be broadening. Um, thoughts on that? What about the experience of death? Yes, right. That would still be? Oh yeah, for sure. That, that transit, so, so Rev Cook is someone who would embrace reincarnation um, and would believe that transition from one, uh, uh, the remigration of, transmigration of souls uh, would be an important experience to embrace consciousness within. Um, and that actually, to some degree, meditative practices, spiritual practices are preparing for those end-of-life experiences, for the revelation of the soul in those final moments. Um, are there a lot of rabbis that hold the um, reincarnation belief? Uh, in, in, prior to the last hundred years, you would probably point to five or six main uh, thinkers who articulate very different versions of it. Um, but yes, reincarnation is definitely a Jewish idea. It's called Gilgalim, or Gilgalay uh, Neshama. Um, and there's, there's different ideas there. One is a full reincarnation. Another is a fracturing sparks of the souls into different Beings. For example, the Jewish tradition says there's only 600,000 Jews. So how does that add up? If today we have 13, 14, 15 million, how does that add up? Ah, you're, uh, um, what do you call it when you have a, um, a life partner who's like you're meant to be? It's a besherit, but what's it called in English? Soulmate. soulmate. A soulmate. That, are, that There's 600,000 souls that get fragmented into different bodies. 
and you unite with different people that actually complete your soul to some degree. So this notion of a soulmate is this idea. Now again, to some of you this might be like total crazy talk right now, and so don't worry, we'll be through this in a minute. And to others of you, you might be interested in the mystical eschatological dimensions. Um, and, uh, um, but actually one, one pragmatic reason I like the idea of reincarnation is because it can cultivate a sense of, of interconnected, uh, interconnected empathy. What do I mean by that? That actually it breaks down self and other. I'm not, I'm not Shmuley, a uh, white, straight man living in 2019. I am black in a past life or future life. I'm a woman in a past life or future life. I'm a dog, right? I'm a, so actually we have been or will be different types of, of um, manifestations of life. And that can give a sense of interconnectivity and even empathy towards. And I should care about climate change if I'm someone who might care about climate change, because that's not just me caring about my grandkid, just me caring about me, who's going to be here. Yeah, what are you going to say? I was going to say, um, so how do you, if there's reincarnation, how do you feel back in your life? How do you feel with maybe somebody you know? Or? Say it again, how do you feel? About what, oh, about what part? How do you feel or how do you accept that in your life? Oh, how do I personally? Well, or how does one accept that? Well, I know people who, um, who meditate to access their past lives. There's one guy who's positive he was Rabbi Nachman. I know this guy, and he's constantly, you know, um, um, he, you know, he has a job. He, like, functions in society, you know. Um, but he's positive he was Rabbi Nachman. And he's also, people who have, who, who have told him they experienced the trauma of a past life, like they, they access. So there's those who really want to access it. There's others who think, um, you know, clearly that wasn't me at all. Um, like I can't even access that, any of that past stuff. Um, and then there's others who will look for the missing link. One of the traditional explanations of it is that we're here to complete something we didn't have the chance to complete. So it puts them in charge, it gives them a sense of charge to complete their mission in this life, to really give them a sense of what do I need to complete here to elevate my soul to the next level, that kind of mystics. But we don't talk like this as, uh, you know, American liberal Jews, right? This is kind of the mystical talk that hasn't really entered our American Jewish discourse, aside from like... Yom Kippur, and it's being written in the Book of Life, and... Yeah, so what do we mean by that written Book of Life? I mean, that's a big question. Um, so, um, okay, lots more to say about that, but I don't want to get too, uh, pull, get too pulled away. But anyways, so he thinks that uh, this revelation of the soul is a big part of what's, what's happening there. Okay, let's move on to the notion of healing God. That might sound like a radical kind of way to frame it. But Kay, are we up to you, Kay? Uh, yeah, I'm next. Good, good. Mm. Okay, so by the way, does anyone, um, um, anyone know who Rebbe Mayer is married to? His wife is the famous feminist uh, Talmudic teacher, uh, Bruria. And they, uh, they, their son died, fulfilling the mitzvah of Shiloh HaKen, uh, climbing up a tree to chase away the, um, the mother bird from before, uh, to, and taking the eggs. And it's, it's, it's one of the theology, it's one of the theodicy 
stories in the Talmud that gets a lot of attention. So Rebbe Meir is someone who suffers from that. And there's a whole thing, you know, uh, um, As a Driven Leaf, if you haven't read it, please read As a Driven Leaf by Milton Steinberg, um, who, um, by the way, he didn't teach at JTS, did he? Something there, okay. So, um, so anyway, so, so that's, that's part of why it's a tribute to Rebbe Meir. But anyone know what you call this theology here? Like in the realms of different types of theology? This is what we would call liberation theology. Very like Oscar Romero in El Salvador, I think he was uh, assassinated in 80 or 81, I think it was 81, um, was, a, was a big uh, liberation theologian. And the, no, the whole notion here, um, you see this in the civil rights movement as well, that liberating people liberates God. That God is confined and restricted. You see this certainly in Christ, a lot of Christianity as well. Um, and, and Hasidic thought, that God is confined and locked away and by bringing liberation in the human realm, we are liberating the divine realm. And so um, um, removing suffering from the part removes suffering from the whole. The other way to understand that on a, on a um, social action level or pastoral level is that um, to alleviate the pain or suffering of one person actually affects the whole system to some degree because the system is interconnected. Uh, it says in Baba Metzia, that um, all the gates of heaven are closed, which is to say that we can't really talk to, if there's a God, we can't talk to that God anymore, except for the tears of the oppressed. The tears of the oppressed opens that gate. Yeah. I have so much trouble yes. embracing that. Okay. So yes. That I, can, I hear occasional people. Like right. Better, oh, good. Yeah. I look and say, but there's so many. There's so people. many. Right. I haven't even, I've, I've, the tip of the iceberg. Right, right. And gee, what, right. what I did was it really all that, Mm. It wasn't that huge, it was just uh, a little, little smidgen. Yes, right. So that's philosophically hard to make. Very hard, very hard. And so, I, I mean, I think one of the most important Pirkei Avot teachings, which we've all heard before, um, is that um, uh, it's not upon us to complete the work, but we can't desist from the work. Um, uh, what, 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 a, what an important idea. Uh, that it's not upon any one of us to complete the work in the world or in anywhere even, um, but neither can we desist from engaging in it. Um, it's kind of like that famous starfish story we've you know, told kids, right? Uh, does that bring awareness right away what I'm talking about? Okay, that there's an old man who walks on the beach and he sees a little boy um, and there's millions of starfish all over the beach and the little boy is throwing them into the water. He says, silly little boy, what are you doing? There's millions of these starfish all over the, all over the shore. He said, well, you can never save all these. And the little boy throws one back in. And he says, yes, but I saved that one. Right? Um, that to some degree, how much, uh, how much more than that can, uh, can we do? Um, and, and I believe um, that, and the media really messes this up for us. I believe at every given moment, there are extraordinarily number, higher number of, uh, of acts of kindness happening than acts of evil. If you, if you watch the news, you will be convinced that the world is all greedy, greedy folks and snob, uh, no, I'm sorry, and terrorists and everyone blowing up the world and shooting each other. But actually, at this moment, there are millions of people holding the hands of people dying. There are millions of teachers who are like repeating a lesson to a child who didn't understand. Yeah, but it's funny yeah. you say that because yeah. I was just talking to a colleague of mine saying, you know, I would love to start a new TV channel called the yeah, the Good News Channel. And he right. looked at me and said, right. that's nice, but you've yeah. been in business about three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because uh, pop, the people, people 
don't people like sensation and horrific stories? Yes, yes. And stories of loving kindness and, 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 and compassion. Yes. It doesn't sell. Yes, right. So my, my, my brother has an app idea. I hope I don't, nobody runs away with it and he loses his idea. But he has an app idea, and I don't, know if you know, I don't know if he's even thought through it, that if you see a random act of kindness, you tag it in an app. I'm here on the subway. We don't have subways here, but you know, I'm here at the corner of Tatum and Thunderbird. I'm here at Tatum and Thunderbird, and I just saw some woman pull over uh, to you know, give a dollar to a homeless person. I just saw this, and you tag it on the app, yeah, and I'm not sure exactly what it does, but I don't know how you would use the app. But he, we, we kind of got um, uh, sidetracked when he was telling me the story. But, but essentially, some ways of really giving, because most acts of kindness never get captured. Really big ones might hit the news, you're right. But all these, and I'm convinced that at every moment, extraordinarily higher numbers uh, of that. And so that might give us confidence that the bit that I'm doing, I'm a part of the global army that's doing this right now. And I just gotta do my part in my corner. Um, so, and, and actually it says in Sanhedrin 98 that where is the Mashiach to be found, the Messiah to be found? Sitting at the gates, uh, the city gates, wrapping bandages upon the sick. Um, you would have thought, who's the Mashiach? Oh, this wealthy, powerful person or, um, you know, sitting, studying or teaching or something, you know, but actually uh, sitting among the lepers, it says. Um, that actually, and I think part of the way of understanding is that the people that are doing healing work are a part of bringing redemption to the world, however we understand redemption, um, and however we understand healing. And actually, there's two ways to interpret that text. One way to interpret it is that that Mashiach, so to speak, is a healer. Right? The other way to understand it, and this is probably more pshat, more the literal read, is that he's also, he or she is also wrapping bandages upon themselves, which lines up more with the liberation theology. Right, that they are a part of the healing process themselves as well. Now, the Piagetzin Rebbe, anyone call the Piagetzin Rebbe? He died in the Holocaust. He wrote a ton of stuff during the Holocaust. Like Holocaust theology, you think Piagetzin Rebbe. He, was, he died in his, I think it was early 30s. But he was a big Rebbe, and they were kind of shaming him and having him shave and doing, and, you know, cutting his tefillin and all kinds of things. But he distinguished in there between Atzvut and Shvirat Halev. Atzvut, he said, is sadness. He said, sadness breaks us down, it has no value. Shvira Talev means brokenheartedness, and that has deep spiritual depth. And he says the goal is to, is to transition, to channel one's sadness into brokenheartedness, right? Um, and that's sort of interesting. How do we kind of channel that experience into something that gives value? Um, that's something that we, uh, <laughs> we won't answer at the moment what that looks like. Okay, let's keep going here. But, yes, please, yes. There is a website that focuses on only the good. Ah. It's called Upworthiest. What was it? Upworthiest. Oh, good, okay. Oh, actually, there's the Good News Network. Us. Is that what you called it, actually? Uh, if you go online, Good News Network, it exists. It's not like a news t station, but, but you can get a digest, a daily digest. The things are pretty small. Um, it'll be like an officer found a dog and helped the dog. Or some, sometimes they're big. Like, uh, it'll be like, the, you know, one of the recent ones they had on there was there was a janitor who they always saw was very sad. And they said, why are you so sad? The students at this university in Bristol, why are you so sad? And he said, I'm, I haven't been able to visit my kids back in Jamaica for like over a decade. And they like raised $3,000 to pay for his vacation and flight to go visit his family. Like things like that. They're like amazing things, you know? So yeah, anyways, it'd be good for us to, to uh, 
Mm. Okay. Yeah. At the local level, doing things as opposed to the networks and the mass Right. Yeah. Great. Also, I think you know every person is worthy of of uh, being supported and helped. Um, um, but um, but it also might be that someone we help has uh, because of that the capacity to help many, many, many people, right? And actually our ability to help them was a transformative experience for them. In fact, uh, in fact, most great leaders who have had a great impact in the world point to moments where someone did something for them that changed their narrative, right? So in addition to the one we help, sometimes helping an individual, a student or a patient or, or someone dying, or well, no, dying is not a great example for this case, although it's super important, of course, uh, might actually have an exponential effect as well. Okay, so we're going to skip Hulin, number, uh, letter A, in the interest of time. Oh, it, oh, it's, oh okay, we're already running. Okay, <laughs> I'm not good at time management. Um, well, I mean, I am, I am okay in life at time management, <laughs> but in, this, in, in learning, I'm not so good at time management. So it's 2 o'clock, um, so anyone has to go, I understand, but anyone who can stay a little bit more, we've got, uh, there's a still a little bit more I want to do together. Uh, but again, no offense if you need to go. So, uh, but, but I will skip over some. So basically what Hulin says there on the inside, did anyone have a parent or grandparent who was from Eastern Europe where if something broke in the house, they'd say, oh, it's a kapara. Anyone ever heard that? It's a kapara, right? <laughs> so so, so um, what they mean here is kapara is like Yom Kippur, right? Atonement, day of atonement. It's an atonement. And, um, and the, the, the example given here is that someone stubs their toe and that sort of blood within their toe um, is like the ola offering. It's like a, it's a sacrificial offering, essentially. So it's a kapara. It's like a, a, a punishment that falls upon someone um, in order to kind of remove a later punishment. Um, it's like, oh, we're so glad that happened, that broken glass, because that prevented us from receiving something else. So, um, but understanding this suffering is, is really hard work. So it's like using the analogy if you swam too far out from the shore and you have three options, um, you can either uh, um, drown, you can fly, or you can swim back. <laughs> you really only have one option, right, in the face of suffering, right? You, if you don't want to drown or fly, or you can't fly, right, then you're going to have to do the work of swimming back. Otherwise, um, uh, well, yeah, I guess, you, I guess you could call for help. You're right. I, you know, but if you're really isolated in the middle of the ocean, um, how do, what does that look like? So Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, uh, letter F here. He was a perfect tzaddik, yet he suffered great pain. How did it begin? Through a deed of his. He was walking through the marketplace when a calf being led to the slaughter ran to him and hid under his cloak. He told the calf, go, for this you were created. That is when his suffering began. And it ended through another deed. His maid was sweeping the floor and found the young of a weasel nested beneath the boards. She began to sweep them away when he stopped her. It is written, he said, that his compassion is upon all of his works. This is when his suffering ceased. So what is, the, what is kind of the literal read of what happened there? Well, if you're kind of sitting and feeling sorry for yourself, mm -hmm. all the horrible things that have happened in your life, go out and do something, help somebody else. Okay, okay, great, great. 
Um, and that when you cause suffering, you will receive suffering. It goes back to the reward and punishment model, right? Or to the karma model. But the other way to understand it is um, actually that it is his cruelty that gives him suffering, right? In a more natural kind of way, rather than a reward and punishment sense. We might say that some of our suffering today is not just about trauma um, or about anxiety for the future or about connected to our pain, um, but actually a lot of it is connected to our moral lives. We're aware that we're not living our best selves. We're aware that we have a moral potential that we're not actualizing, and that leads to suffering. And once we, instead of sweeping away the weasels, show compassion, our suffering can cease also. That actually we are hard upon, being hard upon another is related to being hard upon ourselves, right? And when we learn to be more compassionate to others, we can be more compassionate with ourselves as well. well. Um, and so if we want to move it from the, super, you know, the interventionist reward and punishment model into sort of a more psychological realm, that sense that su suffering is self-imposed, not, not, again, not psychologically, but, but morally. Um, Primo Levi, um, as, as, as you may have heard me say before, or as you may have read yourself, wrote that the, the most difficult time in Auschwitz was the brief period between after the Germans left and before the Russians arrived. And that was because there was silence and there was no order. Um, and it was just quiet and they didn't know how to exist in that space. And then a man found a sack of potatoes and what any starving person would have done is hide away and eat them. But instead he writes that he ran into the square and passes the potatoes out to everyone and he said that, that was the first moment in years he felt like he was a human being. Which is to say that kindness is constitutive of humanity. Kindness is what makes us human beings. And when we suppress the ability for kindness and compassion, we suppress our humanity. And that leads to suffering. And so one of the things we might do for mental health each day is acts of kindness. It's not just altruistic. It's to preserve our own souls, in a sense. Our own suffering that is connected to sort of a self-indulgent. Yeah. I think this also goes back to the, the Meshach putting bags on himself. Yes, yes, right. Self-care, yeah. Is that what you're saying? Self. You yourself yes. benefit. Right. Oh, yes, exactly. Oh, good. Oh, oh, that's a new read I haven't heard. If what I hear you saying is by putting bandages on them, he is bandaging himself in a sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And to be sure, like I know folks who have been battling cancer, who in their battle against cancer support other cancer patients and find that to be therapeutic for themselves, right? Um, that's not to say everyone is able to do that or should necessarily do that, but that ability to, yeah, someone had a hand here. Yes, please. Well, I'm so far away from the SATs that I took years and years ago. Yeah. I don't know the definition of compassion. Uh, I, is compassion only about reaching out to those who are suffering? I think of it mm. as with passion, something I'm doing with passion, and sometimes, more often, it's about celebrating the successes of people to reinforce, mm. to help empower them. Oh, beautiful! To let them know yeah. that they have more strength. Than that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, you know, as it says, "Ezuhu Ezuhu Ashir." No, no. Ezuhu Ashir. Yeah, yeah. Ezuhu Ashir. Who 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 is rich? Hasamech bechalko the one who's content with their own, with their own um, uh, lot, right? Which, okay, so that's one way to say it, that actually the rich person, it's all relative to being content with whatever you have. The other way to read Samech Bechelko is that one is content with his lot, the other's lot. 
My joy is exponential because whenever someone gains around me, I experience joy with them. Compassion is when someone who's doing okay does even better, I feel the joy with them, right? So yeah, so I think you're right. Compassion is not just helping those in, in a moment of suffering. It is, um, uh, it is also, yeah, um, helping people experience their joy, their fullness more, even more deeply. So okay, now we're going to depart from Jewish sources for a moment uh, to look at a Eastern, um, an Eastern uh, wisdom source from Thich Nhat Hanh. Anyone ever read anything by him? Okay, he's uh, interesting, uh, an interesting thinker, still alive. I don't think he travels anymore. But um, who are we up to in reading? Okay, great. Oh, letter G. I don't know if that's helpful. All these letters and numbers, but <laughs> intergenerational trauma and healing. You see that? Yeah, we are trying. I'm sorry, we are trying. We are trying to avoid suffering, but suffering is useful. We need suffering. Going back to listen and understand our suffering brings about the birth of compassion. Oh, good timing for compassion. Yeah. If we take the time to listen deeply to our own suffering, we will be able to understand any suffering that has not been released and reconciled will continue. Until it has been understood and transformed, we carry with us not just our own suffering, but also that of our parents and ancestors. Getting in touch with suffering that has been passed down to us helps us understand our own suffering. Understanding suffering gives rise to compassion. Love is formed, and right away we suffer less. If we understand the nature and roots of our suffering, path leading to the sensation of suffering will appear in front of us. Knowing there is a way Knowing there's a way out, a path, brings us relief, and we no longer need to be afraid. Wow. If your parents were in Japanese internment camps, um, you might still have some of that internment camp in you, right? Um, if your parents were in a Holocaust concentration camp, you might still have some of that concentration camp in you. In fact, uh, those who suggest you know, trauma last seven generations. Um, uh, that it doesn't, in fact, I know a rabbi who recently spent a week meditating on the, on the tracks of Auschwitz because he realized he had, never, he had never looked at that trauma he had inherited. Um, and so he, 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 he urges us to look at that of our parents and our ancestors. And geez, I mean, the, you know, one interpretation is the Jewish people are not a very healthy people given our history of trauma. The other way to articulate it is that actually we're incredibly resilient uh, in our ability to survive. Uh, and that inherited skill to constantly reinterpret trauma in ways that give more, uh, that, that, that pass on that trait of resilience. So I want to read a story he writes later in the book because I, I was blown away by this. Oh, man. Um, I haven't read it aloud yet, which means I may read it just fine or I may not be able to, to, to get through it, uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure, but here we go. There's a well-known Vietnamese story about a young couple who suffered deeply because they didn't practice mindful communication. The husband went off to war and left his pregnant wife behind. Three years later, when he was released from the army, his wife came to the village gate to welcome him and brought along their little boy. It was the first time the man had seen his child. When the young couple saw each other, they could not hold back their tears of joy. They were so grateful that the young man had survived and come home. In Vietnam, there's a tradition that when an important event happens, we make an offering on an altar to our ancestors and, and tell them what has happened. The wife went to the market to buy flowers and fruits and other provisions for an offering to place on the altar. The father stayed home with his son and tried to persuade the little boy to call him daddy. 
Are you with me so far? <clears throat> but the little boy refused. He said, Mr., you aren't my daddy. My daddy is someone else. He used to come and visit us every night. Whenever he came, my mother would talk to him for a long time and cry and cry. When my mother sat down, the man sat down. When my mother lay down, he also lay down. So you are not my daddy. Hearing these words, the young father's heart turned to stone. He could no longer smile. He became silent. When his wife returned, the man didn't look at her or speak to her anymore. He was very cold. He acted as though he despised her. She didn't understand why, and she began to suffer deeply. After the ceremony to make an offering to the ancestors, it's traditional to make the offering from the altar, and then the family sits down and enjoys the meal with happiness. But after the young man performed the offering, he didn't do this. He left the house, went into the village, and spent his time in the liquor shop. He got drunk because he couldn't bear his suffering. When the husband came home, it was very late. He did the same thing every evening. He never talked to his wife, never looked at her, never ate at home. The young lady suffered so much she couldn't bear it, and on the fourth day, she jumped into the river and drowned. The evening after the funeral, the young father and the boy came home. As the man lit the kerosene lamp, the little boy shouted, here is my father, and pointed to the shadow of his father on the wall. It turned out that the young woman used to talk to her shadow every night because she missed her husband so much. One day the little boy had said, everyone in the village has a father, why don't I have one? In order to calm the little boy, she pointed to her shadow that night on the wall and said, there's your father. Of course, when she sat down, the shadow would sit down too. Now the father, young father understood. His wrong perception had been wiped away, but it was too late. And so a lot of suffering can uh, be caused from um, miscommunication or lack of communication at all. And, um, um, and the ability to actually look at the suffering and understand it and talk about it with people, even those who may have caused it. So there's a lot more to say about his, his approach to this. Um, but let's, uh, let's, keep, let's, uh, let's keep moving here. Okay, so now I want to move to modernity. Because right now, we've what we've basically said so far is accept suffering, right? Accept it because um, there's a lot to learn from it. Um, there's a lot to learn in terms of empathy. It could be an atonement, a kapara, right? It might um, give some insight. It might help us to improve our ways. Now, Soloveitchik um, wants to take a different approach here in Lonely Man of Faith. Who are we up to? Who, who, who can read for us? Source five. Yes, please. Protesting sickness. Protesting sickness. A dignity and healing. Men of old who could not fight disease and succumbed in multitudes to yellow fever or any other plague with degrading helplessness could not lay claim to dignity. Only the man who builds hospitals discovers therapeutic techniques and save lives is blessed with dignity. The brute is helpless and therefore not dignified. Civilized has gained limited control of nature and has become in certain respects her master. And with his mastery, he has attained dignity as well. His mastery has made it possible to in accordance with his master. 
Okay, thank you. So what, what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying here, to be sure that he's not being um, um, offensive, he's, what he's not saying is um, um, that, that um, uh, blaming someone who is dying or who is ill as not having dignity or, or casting aspersions upon our ancestors who weren't able to do these things as them themselves not being dignified. He is pushing back against an ultra, what we generally understand as an ultra-Orthodox approach that um, what you need is just faith, right? Well, all you need in, this, in the face of this is, is faith but, and saying that um, there's no virtue to being a helpless victim, right? In modernity, the Jews need not lie down and just be trampled over. Uh, no person needs to lie down and be trampled upon. Rather, um, re- just faith is not enough. We need to protest suffering. Fight it, right? Don't just accept it and interpret it. Fight it. We should reduce other suffering. So he's saying dignity is about building hospitals, uh, you know, uh, addressing suffering in the world, right? That maybe the response to our own suffering is to interpret it, to grow morally, to grow spiritually. But when it comes to suffering as a whole, collectively, um, we should fight it. We should, we should live by halach de bedrachav, imitatio dei, to emulate the divine ways, that's how it's sort of understood, of, um, <coughs> of fighting evil, right? And fighting uh, against suffering. Let the individual themselves interpret it in ways that might be meaningful, but our job is not to give interpretations, but to give people soup, to give people medicine, right? To give them a ride to the doctor, to, uh, just to sit with them and listen to them when they're suffering. Yeah. A rejection of passivity. Okay, good. There. Okay, great. Good. Yes. So there we, we, we might embrace that and we might embrace a middle ground. So the Nativo Shalom, a 20th century Hasidic commentator, says from the leaving of Egypt, we can learn two types of bitachon, of, of trust. One type of bitachon is Yitziat Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt. He calls that Sorry, I'm using a lot of Hebrew here, but I'll, I'll keep translating it. Shev um, v'altase. Sit still and don't do anything. Have trust that the path you're on is going to work out. Or not that it's necessarily going to work out, but have trust that you're doing what you should do. You're on the path you should walk on, right? Then there's the kriyat yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, which he calls kum v'ase. Stand up and go, right? And the wisdom in life is to know when to let go of control, Right? When to let go of expectations and just trust the path you're walking on. And when to step up and change your path or intervene or protest or do something different. And this happens dozens of times a day when we have to identify the, the more passive approach and the more active approach, the more interventionist approach and the more faith-based approach right? as to how to engage in this moment. Uh, with, with, and, and he calls those two different approaches to trust. Dave, are you going to say something? I think there's a, there could be a, a, an interpretation of that that's very subtle, which is the path you're on is the path you're on at this moment. Ah. And you have no choice but to accept what's happening at this moment. Mm. Yeah. And we have complete choice to decide what to do in the next moment. Right. So if we say it's a distinction between accepting the path you're on and making a change, I don't view it that way. Mm-hmm. 
we always have to accept whatever is happening right now, that's happening. Mm -hmm. Now the next choice can be, let that thing continue to happen, or make some kind of intervention. Mm -hmm. So it's always a choice yeah. based upon the, the inevitable fact right. that where we are right now, in this exact nanosecond, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So it's always a choice. Right. Right. So it's, it's, I think, a little bit what you said, but it's yes. a little bit different. And also, we know that denial is, a, is part of the human condition. In every stage of complex realities, there will be a process of denial. This person's not really dead, or I don't really have this illness, or this is not really happening politically. Like, I'm denying that this is the real reality of what I live in, right? I see this in patients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and part of, of your job is probably sometimes to um, help someone to embrace the reality. Actually, this is real. <laughs> yeah. Here's what you need to do. You need to cut your cholesterol, right? You need to change your diet, right? Um, uh, you need to exercise or you're going to die, right? These things are like, you need to embrace it. I, that's hard work. That's hard work. Um, so, yeah. So, th so, thank you for that. Yeah. So, um, uh, um, okay. So, let's go to Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe Nachman uh, was the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. He's the founder of uh, Breslov Chassidut. Um, he is the great teacher that the path, uh, the spiritual path is not through suffering, but through joy. Um, joy is, is the key to all uh, wisdom. Um, okay, who are we up to here? Yes, yes, good. Sometimes when people are joyous and dancing, they grab a man from outside the dancing circle. One who is sad. And I'm sorry, sad. One who, is, sad. one who is sad, thank you. Yeah force him to join them in their dance. Thus it is with joy when a person is happy. His own sadness and suffering stand off on the side. But it is a higher achievement to struggle and pursue that sadness, bringing it too into the joy until it is transformed. Mm. You grab hold of the suffering, you force it to join with you in the rejoicing just as in the parable. Uh, thank you. So um, I, I, I think this dancing metaphor or image is so brilliant because you can almost picture it, right? But so, so what's Rebbe Set Nachman saying we shouldn't do? We shouldn't suppress our suffering in times of joy, right? You can almost imagine you're at, the, you're at a wedding of a child or you're getting an award and it, it should be just happy. But something's on your mind, right? You've got your, someone you love is sick or you know, you've got an estra a strange relationship there or the cost of this event, you don't know how you're going to pay for it. You can imagine the number of things. And he says, don't say, oh, I'll worry about that tomorrow. Just be in the moment and enjoy this now. I'm not, I'll worry about that tomorrow. He says, no, no, bring that anxiety. Bring that suffering into this joy because what will happen when you bring it into the dance? You'll transform it. It will join the dance. What does he mean by that? How does that work? Like psychologically, how does that work? Thinking positive, yeah. Okay. Um, that, that, so I think one, one dimension here could be the joy of experiencing the fullness of being, right? The fullness of being that actually um, this, is a part, this is a part of this, right? Actually, at the chuppah, we break the glass, right? Because no joyous experience should be lacking um, a reminder of suffering, right? Which is itself interesting. Oh, one of the ways I like to explain it to couples is that um, 
don't be so nervous about doing something wrong in the, like, the first day or week of your marriage. Just break something now. Get it out of the way. Right? <laughs> Make a mistake now so you're not so nervous about making one in a week. Right? Just break something. Right? We can do that like daily in our relationships. Let's just like, break a glass so we're not worried about stepping on each other's toes too much. Whatever. So the other way is to say that um, um, everything is okay. I'm going to transform this anxiety or this suffering because I'm going to bring them to the joy and a reminder that when I live by a higher truth or a higher purpose, I can see that even the, 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 those most negative things, um, it's okay. Right? That goes back to the acceptance. Right? That, um, again, we're not going to tell someone else to embrace everything is okay, but we might tell ourselves, like, this is actually okay. Okay. So, um, all right. So, um, uh, in the interest of ending in 10 minutes... We're going to have to do some picking and choosing here. Nadarim, I definitely want to do. Okay, so Nadarim 48. Ravin also said in Rav's name, how do we know that the Shekhinah, the, the feminine divine presence, hovers over the bed of a person who is ill, source six? For it says, God will fortify him on his bed of misery. So God is there to give him strength. We learn similarly, if you come to visit a sick person, you should not sit on the bed. Sorry, sit, not sit on the bed. You definitely shouldn't sit on the bed. <laughs> but you shouldn't sit on the bed. Um, and not on a chair or a bench in a way that you sit above the patient. But you should wear dignified clothes and sit level with the sick person on the ground because the Shekhinah hovers above the bed of a sick person. As it says, God will fortify him on his bed of misery. Now, um, I wouldn't share this with a large group, but actually this is a group of friends um, who I, I know well with a small group. But I was, uh, geez, only a month ago um, at the deathbed of our friend, our, or uh, at least my friend, uh, Gene Grossman, who did a lot for our community. And, um, and I thought about this immediately, and this is not something that medical providers, of course, need to do, but pastors, that the halakha, the Jewish tradition, is that you lower yourself lower than the person in the bed. That it would be kind of dominating to stand over the person's bed to talk to them in a way that some might do if they're making the rounds, but actually kneeling next to her bed so that my, uh, my head was at her level or lower and holding her hand so that we're actually um, engaging in that way um, with each other, which is not only according to this text, that it's humbling to understand that the Shekhinah is there, and we, because, which is powerful. Where is the Shekhinah in the world? Above that person's bed. That's where you find them. You want to find, you want to find the divine presence. Go visit the sick, right? But also, it's a way of saying um, that the dignity for the suffering means you have to meet them where they're at. Be with them where they are. Actually, there's a, a parenting book that my wife just told me about where she said when, um, when a child is in a tantrum, that you can't stand above in a power role. You need to actually go down and be like, and be at their level and talk to them at their height. And once they're there, and I've tried it a few times with my son when he gets in a tantrum, it really helps a lot, right? So too, that, that the dignity of the suffering is to be with them where they're at, right? So, um, and that's the power of someone sitting with us in our suffering on the social dimension, the, the social dimension of loneliness, which is a key part of suffering that people have. In fact, highly... Uh, from what I've read, highly correlated with um, uh, increased risk, um, you know, um, in adulthood is be, of being alone in one's suffering and um, the ability just to sit with someone and be with them where they're at and be able to listen to them and have, have partners and friends and potentially even community. Um, actually, you, did, did you see this thing that came out a month ago that Holocaust survivors are much more sick than other... Um, seniors their age 
but live an average of seven years longer? I thought that was remarkable, right? Um, that physiologically, the amount of, of, uh, of, of pain and illness they have is so much higher, but the resilience to, to right, unbelievable, right? Seven years longer. Unbelievable. So anyway, so the next, uh, so, okay, so the next, so it's just because you brought it up, we can't skip it, the power of solitude and of loneliness, that now loneliness, going back to the Piagetzna Rebbe, can be atzvut, sadness, which is destructive to the mind and soul, or it could be shvirat halev, brokenheartedness, which is spiritually uplifting, right? The existential hero who embraces the lonely man of faith in their loneliness and solitude finds real depth. Right? As an introvert, you wouldn't, might not think um, Shmuley Yankel is necessarily as an introvert, but by the definition of where do you get your energy, I get my energy totally from solitude. As much as I love my wife and, and want to talk, she's a, she's, and she would identify as an introvert, she wants to talk in her free time. I want to be alone and read a book in my free time. We find a balance there, of course. Um, but, but actually, that um, our different way of, uh, of understanding what solitude can be in a heroic sense and in a tragic sense. So it says over here in the Darim 48, as he left the disciple, Rabbi Akiva lectured, anyone who does not visit someone who is sick, it's as if they shed blood. When Rav Dimi said from Israel uh, to Bavel, uh, whoever visits a sick person causes him to live and, whoever, and someone who does not visit them causes them to die, right? They're not being literal there necessarily, but they're dealing with that social dimension, uh, that the only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone, right? And so... Um, um, the, and the him they're referring to there is both the sick person and the visitor. Ah, uh, good. Yes, good. Because, right, that um, if you think you're here to help me, you should go home. But if you're here because your liberation is tied up with mine, then let us march together. Um, that this is not an act of pity of me saving this person who is uh, struggling, but actually the ability to lift each other up. So thank you for that, David. That, that, that's crucial. And in fact, you might cause more harm by visiting someone by, get, by making an act of, uh, act of pity. So... Um, Actually, there's a joke here in Adarim, the page before. Whoever visits a sick person takes away a 60th of their suffering. One 60th. Abaye said to Rava, if that's the case, then let 60 people visit him at the same time and he'll feel better. I, they must be joking, right? That's got to be a joke. I mean, unless they just thought that, like, <laughs> like that's how it works. If 60 people came, they'd be all good. But, but actually, um, um, if you've ever visited a person uh, visited. If you've seen a baby born, they're born with their hands closed, right? And if you see someone die, they die with their hands open, right? It says in Hebrew, We're born as children with clenched fist, but we leave the world, we let go, right? Which is to say almost that we were born into the world to think we don't need anyone, and then we ultimately die reaching out because we realize how interconnected we are, how much we actually, how much we actually need one another. Ellie Wiesel said, to say I suffer, therefore I am, is to become the enemy of man. But what you must say is I suffer, therefore you are. Right? That suffering should not lead us to a narcissism or um, self-absorption uh, fully, although it does partially, of course, for self-protection, evolutionary history is going to tell us, but actually it should lead us to an other consciousness um, where we become more aware of the other. Okay, so we're going to skip this next source, and um, um, which is basically wants to say, uh, uh, do not stand by the blood of your neighbor. 
but actually, since we just brought up Weizel, it's, it's worth saying again, I, like, I, love, I love to quote this. The goal of Judaism was never to make the world more Jewish, but to make it more human, right? Um, that our suffering is not a Jewish phenomenon, it's a human phenomenon, and it should make us, it should make us profoundly more human. Okay, let's close with C.S. Lewis here, who was a uh, 20th century conservative, uh, politically conservative, theologically conservative uh, theologian uh, in, in uh, the UK. And he writes this book called A Grief Observed, which I, uh, I recommend, I liked it. If my house has collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. The faith which took these things in, into account was not faith but imagination. The taking them into account was not real sympathy. If I had really cared as I thought I did about the sorrows for the world, I should not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. <laughs> it's a little, it's to say, how often does someone say, what, God, why him? Not as much as why me, <laughs> right? If we said, why him, we wouldn't be so surprised when it came to why me, right? So, um, um, and again, a lot of uh, the suffering that we uh, are looking at is, um, uh, is about expectations, as someone said. Was that uh, expectations? Um, uh, but actually, one practice I've embraced, and you might find this helpful or not helpful, is that we shouldn't be surprised when problems emerge in our day. If we're surprised, like, oh my goodness, I've got a, I got a flat tire, it ruined my day. I spilled my coffee on my laptop, right? Or I got in an argument with my spouse or my best friend or, you know, or uh, we had tension at work, right? If we embrace, okay, a few things are going to go wrong today, right? Then actually when they emerge, oh, that's life. Okay, oh, here's the thing I was waiting for, like something was going to go wrong. And I don't need to be upset by it. I'll throw off my day. Like I, knew, I, like, I knew this was coming. Life means problems emerge each day. And rather than suffer from, oh, I reached in my pocket. It wasn't there. My food was too hot. My food was too cold. Right? Suffer from it. If we embrace that part of life means that these things are there and we can be ready for them and ready to have them make us stronger, ready for them to give us strength maybe even, um, that can be interesting. Easier said than done, right? Um, but... Um, in the end, I think part of what we're talking about here is, I think we can sum up, the, uh, there, I mean, there are a lot of different ideas here, um, but I think we can kind of sum up by saying two approaches, two primary approaches to suffering. One, which is about the other, and we want to help reduce that suffering, right, in various means that where we have influence to do that. And the su second is about suffering of self, and how can that add depth to our life experience, where we have moral, spiritual growth, a sense of expansiveness. The other thing that emerges here is the question, is Judaism utilitarian? Now, utilitarianism, as you know, philosophically, is the approach that ethics is primarily about maximizing pleasure and reducing suffering. And I think the easy answer is no, they're not, um, they're not the exact same systems. Right? For example, the most famous utilitarian today is someone who's born Jewish but who doesn't identify as Jewish, Professor Peter Singer from Princeton, um, who, who actually in our new VBM uh, interview series just interviewed for 15 minutes while he's in Melbourne. Uh, you can check that out online around utilitarian perspectives to end-of-life issues. But Judy, uh, he argues um, that there's no such thing as human dignity. So some of the radical conclusions he'll come to based upon his utilitarian belief is that an animal matters as much as a human, uh, which is a very... Uh, 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 contentious uh, point, but also that we should, we should kill or at least let die everyone who's in end-of-life care, right? 
because uh, roughly a third or more of, end of, of uh, medical, of health care expenses go towards keeping people alive. We shouldn't be kept alive. And we should prioritize the young and getting uh, cures and care to them. Now, Judaism uh, at large is not going to embrace an approach of kill, kill, kill those in end of life, needing end of life care. It might say, okay, there's some we, we should allow to transition, right? Um, uh, not only because of utilitarian perspective, but also because of their own dignity. But, um, but essentially, this issue of reducing suffering is only one piece of the equation. The other philosophical, the pieces that emerge are issues of dignity, are issues of, of duty, um, and all of Judaism as a moral system can't be summed up into reduced suffering. Reducing suffering is one piece of the equation. For example, if that was the only thing, then we could not have justified making a financial contribution, which probably everyone in the room has done, thank you, for supporting Jewish learning. We would actually think that Judaism as a spiritual system is worth keeping alive. Jewish community is worth keeping alive. Um, wisdom is worth keeping alive. Right? And that hopefully will reduce to less suffering, but that's not the only measure we have for what's good in life. I once heard Rabbi Burke say something pretty yeah. powerful along exactly those lines. Yeah. That there's so many mitzvot to do. Yeah. Some mitzvot are a piece of cake. Please. Right, right. It's the harder mitzvot that are more painful that, that ah. need more attention. That, yeah, ah, interesting. So right. I, I love that philosophy. Right. Know, Good, good, yeah. Giving, giving somebody a dollar at the end of the street when you're wealthy is not a mini mitzvah. Right, <laughs> right. So, so, exactly. So, I wouldn't. More generously, yeah. it actually hits you a little bit. That, that takes it to another level. Awesome. So, building off that, I, you know, I wouldn't say to someone who's not engaged in Jewish life, just do the hard stuff. I'd say, ah, oh, come for a beer. Enjoy a nice Shabbat dinner, right? Come for a beautiful, like, uplifting, you know? But to those who are engaged in Jewish life, I think there, we might be, challenge our own um, Jewish living if we're only doing the things that feel really easy and comfortable, right? If we're not doing anything in our spiritual lives that feel a little bit hard, a little bit uncomfortable, right? What are we doing? So I think there, too, in our spiritual lives, actually, as they say, um, we, should, um, we should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted, right? <laughs> right? So, too, spiritually, like, we need to kind of afflict one another a little bit if we're a little too comfortable in lives, <laughs> in our lives. So with that, I give us all the bracha that the, part of us, the parts of us that need comforting, we should find comfort, and the parts of us that need afflicting, affliction should be afflicted. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us. <laughs>